Good morning. A long sentence for a proud boy in the 2021 invasion of the United States Capitol, a coup in Gabon made in the West, 9-11 and war fever, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. speaks in Brooklyn. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for the week of Friday, September 1st, 2023. Sobering sentences for two leaders of the Proud Boys, a far-right group of self-proclaimed violent extremists claiming to be a pro-Western fraternity and drinking club. The Proud Boys were well represented at the January 6th Capitol invasion in 2021 and subsequent prosecutions. They're known for strongly supporting Donald Trump's claim the 2020 election was stolen. Proud Boy Joseph Biggs was sentenced by U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly to 17 years. He was portrayed on video from the Capitol on January 6th, exalting in the invasion. So we just stormed the f***ing Capitol, yeah, took did. the place back. <laughs> that was so much fun. So much America. So much America. January 6th will be a day in infamy. Yes, yes. <laughs> Another Proud Boys leader, Zachary Real, got 12 years. The group's national chairman, Enrique Tarrio, a Miami resident, was arrested for ripping a Black Lives Matter banner from an historic black church. He's facing sentencing after being convicted of sedition charges next week. Prosecutors have asked for 33 years. Meanwhile, alleged Jacksonville, Florida shooter Ryan Christopher Palmetter identified hip-hop musicians Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly as other potential targets and manifestos he left behind, splattered with references to the N-word. While Palmetter acted alone, the attack on a Dollar General store killing three mirrored a slew of recent shootings in the U.S. over the past two years targeting black people. An expert on extremist groups and white supremacist organizations is Heidi Byrick. She says their unspoken leader is former President Donald Trump. Well, we're not exactly sure in the Jacksonville case how much Internet he did, because so far researchers, including my organization, haven't been able to find a footprint. But the fact that he put Nazi symbols on his gun, which is exactly what the Buffalo shooter did um, a year ago, and what the Christchurch Moss shooter did shows that he was aware this was happening. He was also wearing a patch for Rhodesia, the former white-led colony of Britain in Africa, and that patch was also worn by the shooter in Charleston. So he was quite aware of these symbols among these racist killers. Law enforcement has kept a tight lid on these Apparently, there are three different manifestos, one to his parents, one to law enforcement, and then another one. And so we don't really know exactly what motivated him, other than the sheriff in Jacksonville saying that he was a racist, used the N-word, and so on. This uh, manifesto thing, is this specific to these kind of racial attacks? Yes, it's a serious problem. If you think of Anders Breivik in Norway, who killed, I think, about 80-plus people plus children, his manifesto was then picked up by the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto, which was then picked up by the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto. These things tend to build on themselves, and the manifestos are a key way that people get radicalized into these movements. In the case of the Buffalo Shooter, his manifesto is basically a ripoff of the Christchurch shooter's manifesto and he completely believed everything that the christchurch shooter believed and that's what motivated him to make this attack i'm glad actually that the manifestos in this case in jacksonville aren't on the internet because their potential to then radicalize more people is greater 
is this stemming from the feeling of replacement theory and it's just like happening and germinating amongst easily convinced people without much defenses to these kind of ideas? That is exactly what is happening. Now, we can't quite be sure in Jacksonville since we haven't seen the manifesto, but in all these other cases, Christchurch, the Breivik attack, etc., the core idea, also the El Paso attack, the core idea that these people believe, which of course is false, is that there is some plot out there to replace white people in their home countries with people of color or immigrants and refugees, so the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. It's the biggest motivator of domestic terrorism in this country and in other countries when it comes to white supremacists. And the people who believe this stuff, like the Buffalo shooter, when you read his manifesto, they literally think a genocide is happening against white people, and if they don't do something, white people will no longer exist. It's very powerful, and it's all over the Internet and all through white supremacist circles. People like DeSantis say, oh, these are mentally ill people. Are they mentally ill people? That is a dodge for dealing with the power of these particular ideas. That's not to say that there aren't issues of mental illness sometimes in these cases, but not in all of them. You have a bunch of different young white men in all kinds of parts of the world who are all motivated by the same beliefs. The reason somebody like DeSantis talks about mental illness instead of confronting the power of this white supremacist talking point is because there are a bunch of Republicans who have run for office spouting the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. People like Tucker Carlson who pushed this idea. In other words, the most terrorist-inspiring idea of our time is being used by candidates in the GOP. They are actually helping to spread this very dangerous and deadly idea. There aren't uh, very fine people on both sides. <laughs> no, there are not. Is this become worse if it becomes organized? My feeling is that moving into 2024 with the elections, that we're going to see more incidents like happen in Jacksonville, these kind of lone shooter attacks. But we're also probably, this is already happening actually, going to see more political violence. In other words, election officials being targeted by election deniers, right? The number of threats against the bureaucrats who run our democracy have been growing and growing and growing, and the people are actually leaving the field. I mean, you're like a county elections official. You don't expect to get death threats. So that's also going to be happening, and it remains to be seen if we'll get mass protests like we had in the months leading up to January 6th. I think some of that really depends on what Trump does in the next several months. And is he the de facto leader of these people? I would say he is. I would say that his words matter in a way that a DeSantis can't motivate these people. Who knows, right, in the coming months what it's going to look like with trials and whatever else it gets up to. There seems to be a lot of guns around here. Does that have anything to do with this? Well, of course it does. <laughs> you know, the, the amount of weapons and the kinds of weapons that we allow in the United States it's so easy for someone to get their hands on a gun and shoot someone, basically. We are not like New Zealand, which after the Christchurch shootings, clamped down on weapons hard. We make no movement on guns, and we can, this is a problem not just for domestic terrorism, but it's a problem for suicide, regular old gun violence. It's just crazy that we won't do something about guns in this country. Heidi Byrick is an expert on extremist groups and white supremacist organizations. In more news headlines... 
The FBI is investigating more than a dozen migrants from Uzbekistan and other countries allowed into the U.S. after they sought asylum at the southern border with Mexico earlier this year. A scramble set off when U.S. intelligence officials found the migrants traveled with the help of a smuggler with ties to the radical Islamist group ISIS. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre fielded some hostile questions about the report on Tuesday. Smugglers have been detained overseas, including one linked to the foreign terrorist uh, organization. Uh, no sign, there is no sign that any, anyone moved by the smuggling network has terrorism connections, so I want to be clear there as well. The National Security Council says no plot has been identified, but officials are still working to identify and assess individuals who gained entry to the United States. There's no evidence ISIS was actually connected to the migrants who were allowed legally into the United States as refugees from Central Asia. And the Biden administration came under attack in Washington from family members of 13 soldiers killed two years ago during the chaotic exit of American forces from Afghanistan. Mark Schmitz, whose son Jared was killed as refugees crammed past a checkpoint in a desperate attempt to get a flight out of the country, said he would no longer be silent. Well, I stood there on the tarmac watching you check your watch over and over again. All I wanted to do was shout out, it's 2 fucking 30 asshole. But out of respect to the other grieving families, I bit my tongue once again. Well, as you could probably tell by now, I'm done biting my tongue. The parents spoke at a roundtable on Tuesday convened by House Foreign Affairs Republican Chairman Mike McCall. A summary of the event released earlier by the Biden administration largely blamed the attack on President Trump's administration, although a State Department review was less kindly to Biden. And the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was commemorated in Jacksonville, Florida on Monday. But instead of a celebration of a seminal event in black history, organizers were protesting a brutal act of racial violence by an avowed white supremacist, a shooting that took three lives. White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre. Even as we continue, to, to, we continue searching for answers, we must say clearly and forcefully that white supremacy has no place in America. We must refuse to live in a country where black families going to the store or black students going to school, to school live in fear. Saturday was the second time in 18 months in the U.S. that a white man in his 20s traveled to a black neighborhood and opened fire at a store. The last time in Buffalo, New York, 10 people were killed. And closer to home in New York City, the New York City Police Department announced Tuesday new guidance allowing mosques to broadcast a Muslim call to prayer once a week in the afternoon during Ramadan. It's an exception to sound rules in the city, allowing some neighborhoods to ban the call that's usually broadcast over a public address system. The decision comes after the mayor addressed a gathering of Muslim people at his residence at Gracie Mansion. I have been to Lebanon. I have been to Jordan. I have been to Egypt. I have been to Dubai. I have been to Abu Dhabi. I have been to Morocco. I have been to Saudi Arabia. And every list that I didn't get to, trust me, I will get there. Palestine. I will get to Syria. I will get to... I will get to your countries. 
Adam's embrace of the Arab community came after criticism of his recent visit to Israel, a regular duty for New York City mayors for generations. The mayor also met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, even as Palestinian youth have been killed during Israeli army incursions into the West Bank. In more local news, a group of protesters acting in solidarity with activists in Atlanta disrupted a recruiting event for the Atlanta Police Department at the Hilton Hotel in New York City earlier this week. Stop Cop City has been trying to stop construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center on land that was slated to become a public park. Cop City, as it's called, would train officers in riot control and containing demonstrators from across the country. In January, a young protester, Tortuguita, was shot and killed by a Georgia State Patrol trooper at a camp used by activists near Cop City. Police have claimed he wounded a trooper with his handgun, but no gunpowder residue was recovered, as is common in shootings. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In news from Africa, last Saturday, the West African nation of Gabon held presidential elections, but the presumed winner, President Ali Bongo, was overthrown in a military coup the next day. I'm to send a message to all the friends that we have all over the world to tell them to make noise, to make noise, for the people here have arrested me and my family. Ali Bongo pleading for help from home detention this week. Meanwhile, on Thursday, the African Union's Peace and Security Council decided to immediately suspend Gabon from all activities of the African Union. The takeover ended nearly six decades of rule by the Bongo family and is the eighth coup in Africa since 2020. Recently, a coup overturned the government of Niger, and in recent years, coups have struck Burkina Faso and Mali. The coup in Gabon was unusual in that Western criticism has been muted. Netfer Freeman is an analyst at the Institute for Policy Studies and also on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace. The person that's come, the Republican Guard leader, Aligui Nguema, is one, the cousin of Ali Bongo, and also is a favorite person that had been groomed to replace him by the United States government. This is a person who's rich. They, they got, he has houses in Maryland and, and particularly in Heisenville and Silver Spring, not far from where I am. And you're hearing a different tune when they're talking about even Josep Borrello and the EU and even Anthony Blinken are not talking democracy must be restored when they talk about Gabon. Now they're actually saying... Well, we have to look at the fact that there's not been democracy and people are fed up with these how elections have not been carried out fairly, which is completely distinct from what they're doing in Niger, where they're putting sanctions on them and, and demanding that Bozum be restored. Does that have something to do with Ali Bongo making his statement from house arrest in English? All of these former leaders have been tools of the West. And the West talk declarations about democracy and all that. And they, these leaders know that they don't really care about democracy because they've allowed for these fraudulent elections. Alabongo is just reaching. He's trying to find a way to get support. And he maybe even thought that he would have support just like the previous governments in the previous, I uh, referred to them as comprador leadership in these other countries, but not realizing And maybe that's why he did do it in English, maybe trying to play a card. But he also knows his relative, Nguema, he's been favored 
to replace and take over in the election. They were grooming him to do that. And so they know that he knows he's on shaky ground here, especially now after the U.S. and the EU, uh, the Western countries are not speaking the same way about it. They're not they're not showing that they would support their quote unquote support for democracy in Gabon. Gabon is very uh, potentially very wealthy country compared to some of the other ones, and yet it has persistent poverty. It's hypocrisy even when they talk about that because they know this is really the universal condition of all of these African countries. That's what's making the people uprise against them because all of their resources are going outside. Niger is the same. Most of the people living in poverty. The uranium there is is responsible for powering and giving them nuclear power from a lot of Europe. They are calling for things to be back in their control. Gabon is not really different in that sense. Africa is still a major resource, the raw minerals and then the cheap you know, labor and the markets are a major source for the global economy for imperialism and U.S. imperialism. What is happening in Gabon is that they are, one, the, there's been indications that the U.S. has not, has, has lost faith in France's ability to keep a lid on their legal colonialism and that they've allowed a very serious anti an imperialist sentiment to spread and that they don't want it to include them. The reputation of not being a direct colonizer ever having that kind of history, but it is a leading neocolonizer in terms of it dominates the financial institutions and able to level sanctions. It has a larger military footprint on the continent of Africa than any other country, even larger than France, which is the second largest military footprint, and is responsible for the terrorism that they claim to be fighting that was caused by their destruction of Libya in 2011. And people on the African continent know this. The U.S. is part of also this multipolarity competition. They're really feeling desperation, and they're playing their cards, and they could care less about whether France can maintain its colonies or not, but they're trying to maneuver and see how they can maintain also their own interests as well. Netford Freeman is an analyst at the Institute for Policy Studies and is also on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace. The new leader, General Brice Eligwe Nguema, will be sworn into office at Gabon's Constitutional Court. Closer to home. Next month marks 22 years since the terror attacks of September 11, 2001 that killed 2,995 people, including 19 hijackers. The event was broadcast live by this reporter from the nearby studios of WBAI. Oh, we have breaking news. It looks like a, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. There is a huge explosion and fire at the top of the World Trade Center. This is a live broadcast at 8.52 in the morning. Recorded live from WBAI's Wall Street Studios in 2001. In related news, in a first, on September 11th this year, President Joe Biden will be the only president since the attacks to skip an appearance in New York, Washington, D.C., or Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the victims died. Biden will be visiting troops in Alaska after a trip to Asia. Noted author Norman Solomon just penned War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, and how the true cost of the war on terror was hidden from the American people. What we really need is a single standard of human rights and international affairs, and that governments shouldn't lie us into war. And unfortunately, the terrible tragedy of 9-11 was followed by a 20-plus year war called the War on Terror, 
that has cost, according to the costs of war project at Brown University, directly almost one million lives. And when you add in indirect death, 4.5 million. So numbers, of course, never can convey to us the tragedies and the human cost, the suffering that is involved with each individual. But the reality is you look at 3,000 deaths on 9-11 and you look at just the direct deaths close to 1 million, you have a ratio that is just stunning, a kind of collective punishment of equally equally innocent people. And the ratio between deaths on 9-11 and those who were killed directly and indirectly by the post-9-11 U.S. wars is about 1,000 to 1. For each person who died on 9-11, 1,000 people have died because of the U.S. response, ostensibly because of uh, what happened on 9-11. So I call the book War Made Invisible because in many ways, the war that the United States has engaged in for more than 20 years now has been increasingly hidden from the American people. We're supposed to be the informed consent of the governed that makes democracy real. And instead, we have the uninformed pseudo-consent that has made it feasible for the United States under Democratic and Republican presidencies to go ahead and slaughter people overseas. We do see a divided country developing. A lot of people knee-jerking who don't really know what happened in Ukraine or anything behind the war. How does this apply to the current day? When diplomacy becomes a dirty word, we have a huge problem. The military-industrial complex, Pentagon contractors, never lose a war, never, because they engage in enormous arms sales, and that has been the history of many decades, and certainly after 9-11, it was a boon, a massive boon, uh, to the um, profit-takers profiteering off of war. What role does the media have in all of this? Media are crucial. I spend a lot of time in my book, War Made Invisible, talking about media manipulation, ways in which, in concert, the war makers have gone with the war planners, with the military contractors, and with media in going ahead and pursuing a way of propagandizing the public. That has been consistent. The styles may change. The idea of alternative media that echoes Fox is sort of an oxymoron. Yeah, there's a lot of other media outlets making use of the Internet and so forth, but they are basically echoing the multi-billion dollar right-wing media. We don't have multi-million dollar progressive media. People listening to WBAI know that it's tough to just keep a progressive media afloat and important to do so. The so-called alternative media on the right is simply accentuating these huge conglomerates that are pushing the country into more corporate power. Uh, what's going on in this country domestically that relates to all of this? We hear a lot, and we should, about the need for gun control. What we don't hear about is the need for gun control at the Pentagon. There's no off switch when you have literally several million Americans who have been deployed in the last 20 years, two or three million at least, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then they come home. And most of them never engage in violence, but a disproportionate number, that includes 
January 6, 2021, a disproportionate number of people engaging in political violence were in the U.S. military. When you have so many people into the millions who were deployed for extended periods of time, often more than once, into Iraq and Afghanistan for endless war, and then they come home. There's no off switch for that kind of training, for that kind of know-how, for that kind of mindset to kill that is in the U.S. military drill. And so I would say that it's important to recognize the blowback from a militarized society. The effects can't just be sequestered overseas. And that's another form of the invisibility of our warfare state. And we, I think, need to recognize it and challenge it. Norman Solomon just penned War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, and How the True Cost of the War on Terror Was Hidden from the American People. And finally, New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke at a rally in Lower Manhattan on Thursday. He told about 200 union activists the federal government needs to step up and provide work authorization for migrants arriving every day in New York. It is mandatory that this government on a national level respond to this fight. And I know what other cities have failed to do. I was on the border in El Paso. I saw what happened with people and children and families sleeping in, in airports, sleeping on the street. Not one family with children slept on any street in the city of New York because we've done it. Over 100,000 people. On Wednesday night, Democratic candidate for president Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was in Brooklyn speaking to 800 people. He called for closing the border. What we need in this country is a secure border and then wide open gates that allow people to come in legally and have a fast path to citizenship. We need their help. We need their contribution to our society. But we can't do that until we, we assure the American people that the border is secure and that we are controlling it and not the Mexican drug cartel. Candidate for president Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was in Brooklyn. More than 100,000 migrants arrived in New York since Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida began shipping migrants north to protest a surge at the southern border. And that's the news for the week of Friday, September 1st, 2023. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.